Hello and welcome to episode 399 of the Crate and Crowbar, a gaming podcast. That's a big number, isn't it? It's getting bigger all the time. This is recorded on the 16th of June, 2022. I'm Marsh Davis and this week I'm joined by Jamie Britton. Hello. Hello, Jamie. It's E3 week, or rather it isn't. Because E3 is spending a second year, I think, dead for pandemic reasons. <laughs> so uh, instead, this week has been simply haunted by the ghost of E3, which uh, apparated in several baleful forms, including possessing the grim spectre of definite human man, Jeff Keighley, <laughs> for the Summer Game Fest platform agnostic showcase, and then also several other platform and publisher-specific showcases, uh, which we will talk about very partially. Um, Jamie, even Keeley himself warned everyone to lower their expectations of this year, which is always bodes well. Um, I didn't actually catch this conference, but uh, did you experience just the right amount of Keeley-sanctioned disappointment? <laughs> yes, I think that's right. I think he's, he set up the dis- disappointment levels perfectly. And I watched it, and there was a couple of things that made me go, ooh, and then a whole bunch of stuff that was just like you know, standard, well, I don't know what this game is, <laughs> or this is just the same game that you've already made. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> I still find it fun. I, You know, I admit I do miss, you know, the live conference, um, the, you know, the live big showcase things, because it's always fun when they have the kind of big moments where everyone cheers and stuff like that. I mean, everyone loves all that. So it's a bit of a shame we don't have that anymore, although probably um, quite right. Jeff Keefley is a um, Jeff Keeley. Sorry, I was saying in our in our green room that I want to pronounce his name like the uh, town in Yorkshire, um, but it is Keeley. Uh, he's an interesting one. <laughs> like I wasn't really aware of him until quite recently, and he does seem wow. like a kind of AI projection of the industry's <laughs> collected, you know, uh, uh, worries and guilt and fear about the future. Um, but I think he's a very amiable uh, presence. I was very, I was very uh, taken with him finally revealing uh, Elden Ring, uh, and his voice was kind of breaking with emotion as he finally got to show the uh, gameplay trailer for it. And I, remember, I thought, I thought, oh, he really does seem to care about this stuff, you know. So that's a nice, a nice thing to see. Well, um, I mean, yeah, artificial intelligence is getting more and more convincing. It absolutely, seems, all the time. that's that, that Google AI guy who was <laughs> who's been in the news recently. <laughs> yeah, they should have asked uh, Google's AI what he thought of Elden Ring, <laughs> and then everyone runs screaming from the room, going, "Get out of my mind!" <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I watched it. There were some good bits uh, where like stupid stuff happened. I mean, nothing quite on the uh, level of those guys who turned up a couple of years ago from. Um, deviation games and talked about how their team of deviators was going to do like (laughs) deviator things um which is one of the funniest things i've ever seen anyone do i think um but hideo did hideo kojima no he was at the uh, later one wasn't he He yes yeah uh, microsoft one but they did have um uh for example the game stormgate which is a new rts from x blizzard devs and as someone quite rightly pointed out on Twitter, the dude just turned up with some JPEGs <laughs> of some key art um, and just a lot of promises that it was going to be a really fun, you know, a StarCraft style game. Um, but I was just watching it just thinking, well, why are you talking about it? Like, it's just a, a statement of intent. <laughs> mm. um, but the, the, I mean, I'll tell you, uh, I'll stop slagging things off because there's actually some good stuff in there. Um, the thing I'm most, I was most taken with, I think, was um, Warhammer 40k Dark Tide, which had a gameplay 
uh, reveal reveal trailer, um, which I thought looked absolutely spectacular. <laughs> um, I really enjoy the 40k universe kind of from afar. Um, mm. I've never been able to kind of get into the the tabletop game, but I think it's a really good space to kind of paddle around in. And in fact, the you know sheer like weight of the law and the ridiculousness of the universe can be, like I say, really fun to just kind of paddle about in and, and kind of... I've been playing um, their, the new XCOM-like, which has lots of titles, as is the law for 40k days, but the games, which is called something like Chaos Gate Demon Hunters. Um, oh, yes. Which is really good fun and is completely over the top and ridiculous. And yeah, just like a great, great world to be a tourist in. And similarly mm. with 40k Dark Tide, which is by the guys um, who've done, uh, who did Vermintide and Vermintide 2, which are brilliant, brilliantly fun games. And out of all of the kind of squad shooters, I think it's one, it's Vermintide 2 in particular is one of the ones that's really stood the test of time. And, uh, um, Dark Tide just looks like you know it's the 40k version of that hyper violent, hyper sci fi squad shooter, lots of explosions. They've got the kind of genial announcer from Vermintide to do a kind of dystopian, um, uh, like voiceover sort of weirdo Blade Runner type thing, which I think is great fun. It's got that kind of characteristic sense of humor to it. And yeah, if it's anything like as kind of kinetic and hyper violent as the trailer, I think in for a treat with that one. Um, yeah, yes. I'm definitely very excited for that. Yeah, it looks really cool. I'm also excited. I just thought uh, uh, sticking with Warhammer for a second. I, I read a bit today about Rogue Trader, uh, which is an upcoming the first CRPG apparently in the in the Warhammer 40k universe. Uh, but that sounds like a good good pitch. I'd, I'd be up for that. Yeah, me too. And I think there's another Space Hulk game coming as well. I think I saw yeah. that too, Space Hulk 2. I, I think it's just like, because it's like this maximalist sci-fi world with no edges, it just goes on forever. I think it's 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 a really excellent prospect for video gaming. You know, I mean, I know mm. there's been a lot of bad games based there, but I do think, <laughs> you know, as, <laughs> and like there just seems to be an endless amount of them. But still, yeah, I think it's... Um, uh, it's almost like a kind of, and I'm sure some of the more uh, Warhammer literate uh, members of the pod team could could expound on this, but like the idea that it is this kind of colossal pool of just kind of crazy metal stuff um, uh, that I think that people can draw upon. I think, yeah, I just think that's really good, uh, really good fun. Mm-hmm. Um, another game that stood out to me was the Callista Protocol. So this oh, is yeah. this is the game from the Dead Space uh, dev team, um, who kind of reformed to make this game, as, as I understand it. When it was first announced, they announced it as being set in the Player Unknown Battlegrounds universe, but far in the future. Um, an idea which they've since dropped because clearly it's a ridiculous idea. Um, because as far as I understand, the Player Unknown doesn't have any law in particular so the idea of setting this game specifically in that universe is very very peculiar and i think they have now admitted yeah. that yeah that was a silly idea but <laughs> really really good looking trailer hyper violent like insanely violent like video games obviously love being violent it's one of the things they're best at but this one <laughs> this one was really violent and it ends um the trailer is very short and it's a guy walking his way through a, a gruey 
space station full of horrible beasties and uh yeah looks really gorgeous there was a moment where he picked up like he killed a monster and picked up 40 Callista credits which is obviously the in-game currency but it just made me laugh because I, <laughs> I don't know why I thought this but it was just like what are you going to spend that on? It's clearly gone to absolute <laughs> shit here. <laughs> I mean, obviously oh. upgrades, but still, it's just like, you're never going to get a bag of in the pits. <laughs> <laughs> And the trailer ends with um, the character being unexpectedly um, sucked into a big, like, m- like meat grinder sort of bit of machinery um, uh, in, in the environment. And they've, like, animated the absolute hell out of that moment. It's so frightening you know you really see the look on the dude's face as he is ground into mints oh, <laughs> um, wonderful! he looks really <laughs> upset about it <laughs> um, <laughs> as you would so yeah that looks that looks like um uh, yeah it looks like fun i mean i probably won't play it because i get i tried to play dead space and it really like shit me up like Too it's, scary for it's me. really like alarmingly <laughs> frightening game uh, it did feel like ninety percent of the announcements this year were uh, were sci-fi horror. Uh, so probably, well, I guess that's true of every year, really. But I mean, <laughs> there did seem to be a particular kind of horror bent to a lot of space set things. And there was an Aliens tactical game as well, right? Yeah, that was uh, part of that. I mean, there was, there was one of those, and then there was also a game that was announced like in two thousand and fourteen, and then they went quiet on. Oh yeah, uh, routine. Routine. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's been God. I mean, 10 years in development hell. I don't know it's been hell. Maybe they've been having a great time <laughs> making this game for 10 years. But um, yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's weird how many of these games are not only uh, space horror games, but also space horror games, which we uh, sort of uh, wield a particular sort of retro projected vision of the future. Like uh, Routine is very sort of 80s set. A lot of things within the Aliens universe have a kind of uh, 80s vision of the future as well. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I do. Is think it interesting? I know. I actually, <laughs> it's just derivative. I, I don't know. I actually do think it's interesting because a whole theme of the, um, uh, like, one of the main trends I've noticed um, mm. throughout my deep analysis, as I am that guy from Moneyball, but for games apparently. But one of the trends I haven't even seen Moneyball. Uh, one of the trends I've noticed is. Um, like games set in the future, but also the past. <laughs> like that seems to mm. be, you know, in the kind of mixture of people doing like Doom likes and Quake likes, and we'll talk about a uh, N64 FPS like later. Mm. It seems like that is one of the things that people are really horny for at the moment, which is a weird sense of like, yeah, retro futurism, you might call it, where um, you're kind of, as you say, uh, kind of enjoying something that's kind of retrograde and passe whilst at the same time being kind of up to date it's a yeah it's a it's, a it's weird... interesting well there's i mean it's interesting to compare that because i had a th- thought about this as i was watching the trailer for fort solace which is an another uh i don't know what kind of game it is actually but it's obviously some spooky space game um <laughs> uh featuring amongst others the uh, voice acting talents and possible likeness of troy baker um but like a lot of science fiction like especially the things we've been talking about up until now, like in order to try and make it feel rooted and real, there's often that sort of like a tendency to 
to hark back to that past and sort of scuff up the visuals and make them fuzzy like a fritzing, you know, security camera with scan lines or have chunky buttons or have crackling voice channels particularly. Because I guess like a lot of our, a lot of the kind of culturally dominant experience of space exploration has obviously necessarily been rooted in its in our, our experience of its infancy, because we've been through that period, and that's what we associate with with space exploration. And like, obviously, it's if one were to earnestly imagine the future, we could easily imagine crystal clear voice communications, because we largely have them now. <laughs> and yet, and yet, when I was watching that trailer, I couldn't help feel it was unconvincing because the audio diary Troy Baker was delivering lacked static, like <laughs> static interference. <laughs> it was too clean. It didn't feel right. I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is I'm an absolute sucker. Yeah. But um, maybe not so much of a sucker that the wobbly glass in Alien Isolation didn't annoy me. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like there's a very, like, like there's sort of two poles of, of video game sort of sci-fi future. One in which the technology is really like technology e and really like crazy good. And in those universes, there's always a rogue AI that's going to murder everyone <laughs> of course and then there's the other version where everything's retro-y and bleepy and the old school 20th century fox logo comes up at the beginning and in that one there's <laughs> gribblies in the dark and you can't <laughs> yeah. you have to choose one like there's no way of doing both um uh so yeah no gribblies have... in the slick future no no gribblies in the slick future I, I will i will grant you that you can sometimes have a slick future that becomes a gribbly future but you're never going to be playing in Slick. You're only ever going to be in Gribbly. Um, I feel this needs a graph of some kind. <laughs> Absolutely. Wonderful. Calling out for infographics to get on the case here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm also speaking about shooting things in the past, but it's also the future. One of the things they almost announced at Key 3 was um, a Last of Us 1 remake, which I don't know. Like, there's a bit of me that wants to get all groany and sort of, you know, say, well, why are they spending their time, you know, remaking a game that they've already remastered mm. once? Um, but there's another part of me, I have, to, which which may be the part that has just finished playing the Resident Evil 2 remake, which is, wants me to say, maybe it's fine. Maybe it's fine to just keep remaking the same games over and over again with incremental visual clarity <laughs> i mean yeah mm, i mean i i think we'll probably have more to say about this when we start talking about the uh retro throwback games that you've been playing as part of the uh steam next fest but i do think that maybe remakes like straight up remakes rather than retro throwbacks sort of have a better excuse in that there is a conservation element to their existence i think which is actually quite reasonable like, you know, a lot of these games become inaccessible or simply fall out of popularity by not being technologically sufficient for the current moment. And there's no reason really in other ways why they should be forgotten or left in the past. And I, I don't I don't particularly begrudge them being resuscitated with an extra level of, of polish. And also, like, if you're going to remake a game at all, it seems like you would probably remake them now rather than later because it's it feels like we're at um maybe not so much with the last of us which is you know uh, of a cycle of technology which has barely disappeared from beneath people's televisions but with regards to a lot of these remakes 
they're looking at a step change now and then probably a plateau of technology for a while. So, you know, if you're going to remake it at all, you would you'd remake it now, right? Knowing that that plateau is going to persist for a while. Yes, I think that's probably right. And like I played recently on, on Xbox Game Pass, I played um, Gears of War 1. And at some point in the past, they gave that a kind of, you know, a, a redo, um, hmm. a, a, you know, a little more than a remaster, I think. They haven't done it on Gears of War 2 and 3 because there's there's no need. Those games feel, you know, more or less modern and hmm. they're perfectly playable. And, and it means you can play through that trilogy and they all feel of a, of a piece together. And, and, you know, they did something similar with the, the Mass Effect games too. And I, I do agree that actually the sense of preservation about these things is pretty well founded because, you know, we're looking at games from a, a couple of decades back and, and, you know, having some, uh, you know, if it wasn't for sort of the emulation world, you know, these things would be lost and it makes them, in, in, you know, infinitely more difficult to play and, and you know, certainly play mm. legally. So, yeah, I think, I think generally, you know, it's, it's okay. They're also doing a, a last of us, like a massively uh, like battle Royale game, I think, which is, in, oh, yeah. in in very early stages, God knows what that would look like. Um, but that's kind of interesting, I guess. If you're hmm. a, if you're a Last of Us fan, I imagine that's kind of. I mean, it's hard to imagine what a Last of Us fan looks like, considering, <laughs> <laughs> like, from what I saw of that sequel, it is really like it really puts its its uh, audience through the ringer. That one, <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. kind of oh. wants them to ask what sort of what they're doing there. <laughs> Yeah, I did. Uh, I did. I didn't actually play uh, the Last of Us two, but I did. I did watch all of the cutscenes. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't face it. It's, they're, they're too kind of grueling. Uh, both. I, I also noped out of the Last of Us one at some point and just watched um, a friend's playthrough of it um, because uh, I just found it too too oppressive to actually interact with. Strangely, I just and I felt the same about the second one that actually all the. Uh, being asked to participate in just a relentless murder of people who are probably largely blameless, apart from the terrible situation they find themselves in, uh, just uh, I just couldn't couldn't stomach it. But I found um, as a movie <laughs> it to be quite compelling. Um, yeah, when it comes to this, it comes to this sort of weird. You know, it's it's really interesting because it's this super triple A, super high budget series that is almost a kind of piece of transgressive art about violence itself you know almost like a kind of american psycho sort of um piece of sort of extreme literature it's it's something you know people have been worried about violence in video games for decades and you know it seems like that's a game that really tries i mean how i haven't played it. i've watched bits and bobs of it how successful it is I, I don't know and i know there's people who think it's not at all successful in that um but certainly interesting, you know, that someone yeah. really took a punt on that. Well, nobody wants to be lectured by a game which is also inviting you to sin <laughs> and tell you off for sinning at the same time. But uh, I did. Uh, I think. I think the way it mitigates that to some extent because I think the first one is more about like, oh, aren't we really the monsters? Sort of, you know, the, which is quite a well-trodden ground for zombie fiction, uh, and I, I find that a little bit tedious. But then the, the, the in its sort of climax, it does ask more interesting questions about more about the, the specific characters, which is always more engaging if you have a, a character who is defined and has very particular foibles, which are then worked upon by the plot that for me is much more exciting than the kind of larger scale moral finger wagging that it's doing and the second one also does you know i 
fairly well-trodden ground in terms of revenge fiction, you know. Is revenge really worth it, Jamie? Hmm. <laughs> there are differing opinions upon that. Um, but it, it does it in a, in a way which is uh, tragic and uh, convincing and uh, uh, ultimately really, uh, really hurts <laughs> to watch in a way which I'd compare to like... Um, revenge slash self-destruction masterpieces like blue ruin or things of that um but anyway yeah yeah sorry i'm getting away from the point here i don't really know how uh, uh, a multiplayer only version of that is going to sell the same idea but naughty dogs multiplayer stuff whilst always sort of feeling quite unnaturally divorced from the games that they've been attached to has always been really kind of classy i absolutely loved the uncharted especially uncharted 2 and 3's multiplayer where were fantastic, and no one would play them with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only, if only I'd known you back then, Marsh, because I, I love those as well. I thought they oh, were. Yeah. I remember playing a lot of the uh, Charter Two and Three. They had that kind of almost a kind of weird. Um, I'd compare it a little bit to like playing Chivalry Two now. They almost have a kind of like farcical knockabout comedy vibe to them. Oh yeah, because they were sort of so so bonkers and didn't really you can monkey around all over the things yes. <laughs> clambering around these buildings like you're a crab yeah. and, <laughs> and diving under people's heads fantastic they announced uh flashback 2 um oh, yeah which i as someone who purchased the game fade to black with god knows how i must have bought it because it would have cost like 40 or 50 pounds in the 90s so somehow yeah. i had acquired a copy <laughs> of um early 3d shooter Fade to Black, which I thought was the sequel to Flashback, but um, apparently not. Apparently that's just been announced. Um, uh, but that should be interesting. I mean, Flashback was always a, a weird game. It was one of those mm. cinematic platformers that... Rotoscoped. Rotoscoped, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and very French. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested in that. I can never get very far in Flashback because everything was so laboriously difficult. Mm. Um which they very much updated into 3D for Fade to Black. I think Fade to Black might have been a game I never got past the first level on. Uh, despite 40, that. 50 pounds well spent. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I can't have spent that much. I must have got it at a car boot sale or something. But I remember getting <laughs> it and being very excited about it because it was like pre-Tomb Raider 3D. You know, you could do the thing where you press yourself up against a wall as a guard is approaching you and then dart out from cover and shoot him in the head, you know. Um, I mean, it was more or less impossible with the controls that they gave you. Um, and as I say, I never got past the first level, but, you know, so yeah, that was, that stirred some memories of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, talking nonsense. Um, American Arcadia was another game that was announced at, um, uh, at Key 3. And I didn't understand what this was at all, but it was incredibly uh, striking looking. Um, so much so that a moment ago I just looked it up on Steam to try and work out what the, what the hell it was. Um, but it is a kind of uh, side on another kind of cinematic platformer that is kind of set in some kind of weird um, utopian television thing, and it just looked quite striking and interesting. So I was I was interested in that one as well. Um, yeah, I I, that really... one passed me by. I haven't heard about that at all. Yeah, it's it's kind of what does it say here? A 70s retro-futuristic, uh, retro-futuristic again, metropolis where all its citizens enjoy a life of luxury and comfort, unaware that they're being broadcast live 24-7. So yeah, it's, uh, it's one so of those So it's like sites. the Truman Show meets the Jetsons. Yes, um, meets inside. <laughs> meets inside. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, 
so yeah, that was that was another one. So yeah, I thought you know it was an okay uh, little ceremony, and I think there's enough kind of you know there's certainly enough um, horror shooters coming up for for everyone to enjoy. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it did it did really lack a kind of you know it would have been great if there'd been an Elden Ring DLC announcement there. I think that would have been really excellent or something like that. And there was nothing, there was no massive um, su- surprises. Um, mm. But you know what you're going to do? You can't have everything. <laughs> I mean, it'd be great to have massive surprises, but if no one's made a game or is making one, then <laughs> you can't have that. <laughs> yeah, I think everything's just a, uh, still uh, uh, st- somewhat uh, delayed by the last couple of years of pandemic, and I think it makes sense that people are holding off a little bit longer. Yeah, they managed to put, sort of push out a couple of the um, bigger releases, didn't they? Like you know, Elden Ring finally was released and stuff like that, mm. but. That's the kind of ones we got, and now we're back in a bit of a, a bit of a dip. Mm. Although I will say that the, the Bethesda and Microsoft conference was significantly kind of, you know, more impressive in many ways. Uh, do you think so? <laughs> well, no, well, I don't. I don't actually think so. They had some stuff to show. I guess you know was was a thing. Um, the sartorial choices of the presenters were were more conservative. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Jeff Keighley seemed to be wearing velour. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, so actually, I said that, but it, it begins with Sarah Bond in a, in a, uh, a sort of dungaree dress, which was which was very impressive. But then the rest I have, of it sort I have of to say, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know anything about fashion, but I know what I like, and uh, her dress was excellent. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely um, definitely more outré than the uh, bootcut jeans and slimming in inverted commas blazer combos that, that dominated the rest of the. Uh, so anyway, I, the games were fine too, I guess. <laughs> Todd Howard uh, was wearing um, Claire from Resident Evil 2's jackets, which uh, yeah. I guess he picked off her corpse or something. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't fit him. It'd be like putting a tent on him. Anyway, I half expected him to have one earring like David Brent in the Office Christmas special. <laughs> I don't know, one of the biggest shocks uh, from the, the Microsoft Bethesda conference wasn't a game announcement, but it was the sort of a more boring game biz announcement, which is that Riot's putting all their games on Game Pass and making it so that you don't need to grind or even unlock any of the characters in the games which are entirely designed around grinding to unlock characters, which is interesting. I'm, I, 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 on one hand, I really welcome it from a sort of consumer point of view, but I'm really fascinated to know what it will do to the culture of that game, the game balance, onboarding, all these other things. Because I'd I'd imagine they'd be sort of knocked for a loop by it. But um, it's quite exciting to see that. I think that represents good value. In as much as I I am wary of Game Pass uh, as a subscription service, I do prefer a subscription service to grinding freemium games, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, how the basically the entire economy of, of video game video gaming generally is sort of reforming now, sort of finally following on from the sort of Netflix model. And it's kind of unclear as to where that will land. I mean, Netflix mm. have got themselves in this terrible bother now where they sort of, they outspent everyone else early, early on. Um, and for them, it's now a kind of, you know, they have to kind of see if they can stay afloat long enough <laughs> to kind of beat the people that they crippled by, you know, outspending them in the first place. And Microsoft have been, you know, clearly really flashing the cash 
um, mm. recently. And it is, yeah, it, it, it's it's nice to see some of those, you know, models being a bit more, you know, it's nice to see that the NFT shit went away pretty quick. And it's nice to see, you know, stuff like the Riot Games not not being quite so aggressively, you know, free to play nonsense type stuff going on there. So it'll be interesting mm. to see where it where it all ends up. Yeah. Hopefully. Shall I go through some of the other announcements? Please do. Uh, there was a, a trailer for um, on a sequel to A Plague Tale, which was Asobo's very seven out of ten. <laughs> Rat swarm physics simulator set in a sort of alternate France of of some uh, past era. It looked grim in a good way. I don't know. Did you do you have any feelings about that particularly? Mm, no? I quite like the idea that you could make a kind of rat tornado in the first game. That sounds quite cool. Yeah, I, I, I tell you what. I wish um, they'd they'd put that tech in other games, like the way that Ubisoft shares around its technology amongst other studios. Uh, like you could press a button in Forza and you know subsume your competitors in a tidal wave of tiny <laughs> Nissan Micros. But, um, unfortunately, they haven't done that because they did show the new Forza game, and um, they haven't they haven't done that. But they have, Jamie, rendered anodized aluminium with uh, greater levels of fidelity than ever before. Yeah, I mean, I I, I mean, like Forza um, Five is the first like driving game I've you know sort of played in decades really and uh, i think the last one i actually owned was like gran turismo one or something and you know it was it was uh i really enjoyed kind of getting into that you know it was really fun oh, right. to yeah like that game i mean the but it's just a, it's just going around a road isn't it it's just it's... going around a road you it doesn't matter how anodized your aluminium is you're just <laughs> going around a road over and over while people shout encouragement to it to you like you're uh um, you know, like you're a sort of moron, <laughs> like trying to tell you that you're having loads of fun. Yeah, I, I don't know. For some reason, I got a good like ten hours out of Forza Five of driving around while everyone shouts how wonderful I am at driving, <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know, saw some great sights on the way. I think you know, I think it's, yeah. Uh, I'd say I, I was a bit. Uh, th- that was not the right target for my snark. I don't. I don't particularly like car games, but actually, I do really like all the graphical fanciness that they deliver on the back of car games. I'm altogether excited about the rendering of dirt in in uh, well dirt even dirt <laughs> franchise. But, I, I tried to uh, buy. I tried to play a dirt game recently. I bought Dirt Four. I think was on sale or Dirt hmm. Three, a couple of dirts back, um, and I I. I Played it for about fifteen minutes and then remembered that this wasn't wasn't for me at all. <laughs> it's far too difficult. Um, I have no uh, desire whatsoever to have mastery over the mud, so I stopped. <laughs> I've got my four quid back. <laughs> uh, there was also Overwatch Two, uh, which I'm, I'm just I just don't know about at all. Really, I, I got heavily into Overwatch One for a, for a time, uh, but I just with so many of these multiplayer service games i got left behind by the meta i just took a break from it and i couldn't get back into it uh and i just feel kind of exhausted by it and and obviously the idea of making overwatch 2 is to break that spell essentially and it should be conceivable that i'd be able to get into overwatch 2 but i just don't feel that they were making that pitch at all um to me personally which is rude obviously they should have (laughs) they should have addressed my personal problem with their franchise um but uh yeah it just didn't feel like 
that's what they were selling was uh, a new game into which people could jump. But actually, the, the uh, it was all about evoking a very strong sense of continuity and affection for characters who I 510% despise <laughs> <laughs> and all their awful catchphrases. So um, it didn't it didn't really work for me. They're doing a weird thing with it, aren't they? Where they're kind of growing Overwatch Two inside Overwatch One, like it, it's a strange it's a strange model they're doing where they will slowly, like it is a kind of you know a two point release in all. Well, I mean it's literally a two point release, but it's a kind of the way they're releasing it and the way they're rolling it out is to kind of slowly replace Overwatch One's kind of architecture as well. So it's a kind of a very strange way of doing it where they kind of implanted it within and are kind of letting it kind of grow and spread and like uh, a parasitic wasp yeah. eating its host from the inside out. <laughs> that's right. But we That's the that's the catchphrase they should have gone for. That's the pitch. <laughs> I do, I did notice that there's a, there's a new character uh, who is just as awful as all the others, but uh she has a spray painted gun. I noticed there were a lot of spray painted guns this year, like guns that are spray painted with like eat this or in neon pink or some you know to imply that the characters are like all youthy yeah and like totally countercultural while at the same time you know they've paid some amount of game bucks for this neon rimmed machine gun grip or whatever which is as <laughs> as uncountercultural as i can imagine i just it just strikes me as deeply deeply uh, untruthful no more spray painted guns that's my new rule how about that i that's think fine. that's a good one uh, what else? Solid rule. Uh, Vin Diesel's in the new Ark game. <laughs> he doesn't actually say anything in the trailer. He literally just issues a single grunt. And yet, you know it's him. Like, immediately. You could, you, even without his very terrible CG stand-in, you would know it was Vin Diesel. That's star power. If you can grunt. <laughs> his little piece to camera, I realized, was the exact moment where he stopped being charming to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was, I've been in for The Rock for a while. I remember watching The Scorpion King and thinking, you know what, that rock is... <laughs> but yeah, that's that's run dry now and I'm bored of him and he's a tedious man who needs to go away. Oh, that's The Rock. No, I'm, I'm Vin Diesel is oh, who God. I was talking about. There was a, there was Although... a game with The Rock as well, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, I missed that one and that announcement though. Oh, um, man. It's so, I mean, they are the same man, so it is hard. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, that... You're spoken like not an aficionado of the Fast and Franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Fast and Franchise? Did I say that? Mm, Fast and Furious Franchise. They're and missing. also its ancillary drama off uh, offset. So, <laughs> not the same man. Jeez. Um, Flint, Flintlock looked cool. Uh, it's a sort of over-designed Souls-like boss rush game with uh, uh, kind of fun weapons. Uh, it has a terrible subtitle, Siege of Dawn. Um, but it does have, um, your character has a very small hammer in it. Or rather, like a realistically sized Warhammer, which is, you know, much smaller than games typically depict hammers to be. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know why I seized upon that detail. So, yes, uh, no spray-painted guns, but more realistically sized hammers. Well, that's what I want. That's good to know. Now. That's a good slogan. <laughs> uh, there's Minecraft Legends, which I actually worked on a little bit uh, in very early pre-production. Um I didn't really have much to say about the overall design of the game, but we were sort of working out what genres we'd like to explore uh, alongside Minecraft and who we'd want to work with. And uh, when they turned out they were up for it, we helped sort of work on their pitch for us. 
Um, but anyway, sorry, it's, uh, it's an RTS from Blackbird Interactive who did Homeworld Deserts of Crack and they're making Homeworld 3 and they made Heart Space Shipbreaker. So they're, you know, a cool studio uh, made up of a lot of former Relic devs who are also, you know, uh, storied RTS developers. And they're, they're a really cool bunch to meet and uh, work with. Definitely amongst the most impressive studios that we took pictures from at the time because they were just they were just really committed in a way which I felt was unusually genuine to making something that was a meritful game in its own right and that stayed true to like some of the core mechanics in Minecraft in very thoughtful ways. I have absolutely no knowledge of how it's turned out since then but I'm pretty uh, pretty excited to find out actually. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I'm never going to be a uh, sort of Minecraft, um, you know, standard Minecraft uh, player, um, although, you know, I've played it a little bit. But I really love, I'm sort of really interested in anything that takes place there. I've played a whole bunch of Minecraft Dungeons. I think it's a really, mm. really, really great game. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and, and similarly with this, um, I was also kind of, you know, it's such a friendly um world you know you kind of immediately feel at ease there one way or another and so you're kind of ready for anything in terms of like what what you know they want to throw at you um and you know the the idea that minecraft is this kind of very trusted provider to a lot of people i think it, it gives a nice vibe that like oh they've given their uh, i say they you marsh have given you know your sort of <laughs> approval um to something it kind of it has a nice kind of vibe of being you know sort of uh uh, authored and, and sort of you know presented to you by a trusted uh, patron. So yeah, that looks looks yes. really interesting. I'm, I'm nice to hear you describe me as a trusted patron. That's that's how I, I think of myself. Uh, but t- talking of uh, dungeons, I mean uh, Diablo Four, which you know, obviously uh, uh, it shares some DNA with, um, was was shown looking much more grim and splattery uh, than certainly dungeons is. I'm not. I, 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 are you a Diablo fan? I'm not really a great judge of these games. So that I've I played them, but I have like quite a casual acquaintance with them in contrast to the the two Toms. Yes, I I like them. I kind of I always want to. I, you know, I've probably bought you know them several times on several different platforms, and I always think this is the time when I'm going to really like go for it and really get into Diablo, and it's going to be my like forever game where I'm just constantly going back to it. And I always get bored after about five or six hours, but it is always a really good fun five or six hours, you know, um, uh, Diablo three, I think is a really, it's so like friendly in, in so many ways, um, that it's, you know, it's great fun to just kind of pick up and blast through and then forget about, I have to admit watching the Diablo four trailer, I started off going like, Oh, come on. Like, this is just, isn't, haven't we done enough of this stuff? But then by the end of the trailer, it completely won me over. And I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm definitely going to play this when it comes out. It looks wicked, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, I, I, really, I, I, was, I wasn't totally on board with it because it, it does look very miserable. There was one part that made me laugh where it's like, if you can, you can uh, sort of like free up areas of demonic contamination. And it's like, then you can turn them into settlements. And it comes to this, this picture of like these four ragged looking people looking forlornly at, at their feet. As they sit in mud. <laughs> like, Yay! Yeah, yeah, it's great living here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're having fun. Uh, and then you saw a, a guy just roll over enemies with a giant blood sausage. So uh, that seemed that seemed up my street as well. Uh, yeah, I think it's. I think it looks like a lot of fun, and I like the idea of because like Diablo three has a kind of toe in that kind of vibe, but is also 
um, you know, a little bit, it's kind of camper. And and this is, you know, this new one is also kind of camp as well, but in a kind of slightly different, slightly more hard edge way. And I think that looks, that looks like quite a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm definitely up for a bit of Diablo uh, 4, mm. I think. I'll definitely be playing that one. I like the big monster at the end of the trailer, you know, the big giant thing. That was cool. That was cool. There's a, there's a, <laughs> I assume it's a game uh, listed in my notes, uh, and all I've written is ball bug <laughs> in caps. I don't remember what that was about. Um, I think that was the game by the guy who was the lead designer or gameplay designer on Inside and Limbo, oh. um, and he's done a new game. It was on the cover of Edge a couple of months ago. I forget its name off the top of my head. Ball bug, clearly. Ball bug. Is it ball bug? <laughs> no, I, I suspect that is not what it's called. Um, but yeah, ball bug, and I, I look, it does look, um, it looks very interesting. I mean, the trailer is a is a bug picking up balls and putting them on plinths, um, which you know slightly made me go, oh, this doesn't seem like inside. You know, inside is a horrifying meditation on conformity and violence in a brutal dystopic world, and this is a <laughs> this is a bug chucking orbs around, but. Um, you know, that guy's got an amazing track record and having made two of the best games ever, in my opinion. So hmm. um, hopefully, yeah, there'll be... I'm sure there will be some kind of twists and turns in, in ball bug or bug balls, <laughs> whatever it's called. Um, and I, I noted on Twitter that they said they'd be, you know, be making it for sort of five or six years. Um, uh, so, yeah, that looks kind of fascinating. I'll, I'll play anything that guy makes because inside it's, it's still one of the, the best game experiences i think i've ever had so yeah uh should we skip to the end i think we should skip to the end there was a there's a big long-awaited reveal of starfield uh which is bethesda's uh next mega rpg as it's almost certain to be um got quite a lot of flack on my timeline uh i I have to admit i wasn't particularly into it but uh everybody else seemed to be uh, upset at it for potentially over promising um that it claims to have a thousand explorable planets and everyone's like, well, how many of those are going to be interesting? Which is a very <laughs> fair question to ask. Um, but I say my beef with it was more rudimentary in that it was just absolutely rote science fiction 101. <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose I shouldn't, shouldn't have been surprised by that in that, you know, uh, maybe the Elder Scrolls isn't the kind of the most wild out there fiction itself but i mean you, you know you're going to be working on this game for like a substantial portion of your life and i just imagine isn't there something inside you just like a tiny voice that says maybe make this just more interesting than investigating alien relics you know mining ore space pirates cyberpunk dive bars you know just like all the things that you've seen before wouldn't you want to come up with just like one novelty on which to hang the premise off and maybe it has that like maybe there is something wild and crazy in there but it definitely wasn't in the trailer and what was weird is that i felt like some of the earlier stuff that we saw before this announcement was actually more promising that it had a sort of uh, interesting uh, aesthetic to it where a lot of the space suits for example and the concept art seemed to be quite grounded um in a again like with a sort of retro futurism and that it was like um, a projection of a sort of very uh, pragmatic era of NASA uh, design um, projected into the future, and then, um, but actually, actually, with this trailer, I, I felt that it was very aesthetically inconsistent because you had some of this quite beautifully designed 
uh, retro futuristic stuff. And then there was also quite a lot of um, just very incongruous sort of generic techno gribble as well. Um, I, it just didn't work for me. I'm, I'm actually quite happy with the A Thousand Planets thing. I mean, I'm, I, I don't feel the need to, to explore them all, but I'm just not sold on the stuff that they might fill it with. It's actually the content rather than the absence of content that, that disturbs me. Yes, I mean, I, I imagine they've thought about the you know the, uh, the 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 thousand planet things very carefully um, because, and I my guess is that they found a really nifty way around. You know, obviously they can't do a thousand; they can't do one planet's worth of content. <laughs> Planets are big, um, so you know, obviously they found some way around that, and I think that is fine. <laughs> um because otherwise you're gonna make no man's sky or you're gonna make the weird um like planets that they have in um mass effect one where it's like it's a different color and then it has the same building on it you know it's uh i think they've probably found a really nifty way to get around that so i'm not so bothered by that i tend to agree that they are people who kind of tend to make these worlds which have a very narrow um sort of f- field of view um, like the the highs and lows are kind of um, the you know I've got a thing on my microphone right now which limits the frequencies uh, so that all the horrible sounds that are around me right now are hopefully cut out and it does obviously cut into the beautiful sound of, of my voice um, and I slightly feel with with Bethesda games like that that they're kind of they're limiting their frequencies to keep it safe and to keep it stable and to kind of in this you know when you play a game like The Witcher 3 where every time you come upon something you think is going to be one thing they've made huge amounts of effort into twisting it into twisting it into something different and to surprise you and to kind of take the story in unusual directions and from what they showed of the you know the kind of you know the game and the the story and the content it seemed like it was very much playing in a kind of safe kind of space um yeah everything is very familiar and I get that they kind of feel like they have a duty to that because people have certain expectations of them and, you know, people have a kind of a desire to live in these spaces, to kind of set up jobs and careers and lives in these worlds. And therefore you can't make them too spiky and individual because then mm. you're sort of denying someone their own ability to put their mark on it. Um but I think that people are more willing to accept. Um, I think that's a too conservative way of looking at what audiences are into. I think if you look at Elden Ring, which I completed recently, um, no big deal. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, you know, that is a really good example of a massive open world that takes, you know, not infinite amounts of unusual choices, but often takes them when it has the option to. Um and doesn't worry too much about being ridiculous or looking silly. Sometimes it does look silly, but sometimes it looks unearthly and wonderful and strange. Um, And I do worry that um, Bethesda slightly worry a bit too much about, you know, that. Um, Mm. I also think, like, the first thing that happened in the trailer, like, you know, the big grandiose moment, the spaceship lands on the planet, and he steps out, the character steps out onto the planet and walks through an arch... Of, mm. of, of rock and the first thing he does is takes out his mining laser 
and lasers off some rock for his rock collection. Yeah, I think um, I made an involuntary noise at that point, which probably would not have uh, not have gone down well with the the audience sentiment that they were they were looking for. I just trailer, think that's but... a very bad idea to put that right at the front of your trailer. That is mm. the most you know, that's the thing that you do in No Man's Sky, No Man's Sky that is so they've had to build an entire games worth of stuff that isn't that to make people forget how tedious it was to fire a light mining laser at some rock and collect some rocks. <laughs> and I do not know why that was the first thing they showed. <laughs> um, I have to say, your, your point about people sort of building lives in this, within this world, which they, they don't, to some extent, in spikier, sort of more uh, idiosyncratic fictions, that, that is a really interesting point. I had not considered that at all. I'll have to go away and think about that. Though, well, on the yeah. other hand, it was revealed... Uh, that when you purchase your starter home in Starfield, it comes with a mortgage. And uh, I, <laughs> I actually just sort of gave up feeling any emotions whatsoever about anything at that point. I just think, <laughs> what's, what's the point? You know, we're all going to pay taxes and die eventually, aren't we? <laughs> so let's just forget about the stars. We don't need them. Let's just climb into a hole in the cold and caring earth. And let the soil fall in around us and go to sleep forever. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Make so, that yeah, game. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I think it'll be. I don't. I think they. I think they're going to make a really solid game, and I think it's a shame that it will probably end up being a solid game. You know, an eight or a nine out of ten. When you know what you would hope is this is the next, the next generation. You know, this is the kind of. This will be the sort of watershed moment for you know what you can do and it's not going to be that and i think pe- people were probably a bit disappointed in that but they'll get over it and i think it'll probably end up being a lot of fun and also the, the yeah. great thing about these games is that the, the modding scenes are all you know they're just insane and so you know there's always going to be a hun- huge, huge amount of interesting stuff and, and creativity and i feel pleased for the people who make that their mm. you know their their hobby that they get to have a whole new sort of you know canvas to to, to paint on it did actually prompt a discussion uh, <clears throat> with Tom and Alex about whether we are inherently more forgiving of generic fantasy than generic sci-fi, which I thought was uh, interesting. Like we, we were just we, we were totally fine with being just some fucking medieval dude in Realm of Orcs, The Reckoning of Dawn, or something. But uh, <laughs> like, if science fiction doesn't immediately present us with a distinct premise, then we just <laughs> we're just like completely turned off. Uh, <laughs> I wonder, do you think that's true? Like, I I, th- I think that maybe fantasy just sort of comes out of the box with a bunch of sort of parameters that we, we have to be okay with because they more or less map onto our conception of medievalism, like inaccurately or otherwise, whereas sci-fi sort of has to actively set those parameters. And so it's like super apparent when that opportunity has been squandered. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think the verbs of low fantasy are just inherently more fun. Like, hit man in head with axe is just always <laughs> going to be great. Fire arrow at man. Um, mm. uh, sacrifice pig to God. It's just all much more easy <laughs> to kind of get involved with. Whereas in, like, sci-fi, you've got a whole universe of of shit you can be doing. I mean, obviously, fire laser at man is always going to be a, a, a mm. crowd pleaser. But like, like fire laser ore, not not so good. Not no, not not good at all. And you know, <laughs> you can't mine ore with an axe. I've decided. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and that's going on my t-shirt. Um, uh, but no, I think I think it just I think the suggestion of of a kind of low fantasy world is just inherently more fun. Uh, it, it feels um, 
like it has less responsibility to to kind of shock and surprise us mm. whereas in in sci-fi and 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 uh, you know sort of futuristic type stuff and i think that's probably why everyone's doing retro futurism now as well is it's you know it just kind of for mm. some for whatever reason it just kind of feels tiresome to be like you know we're here in space and anything is possible you know we want we want the the sort of mud and the muck and the hitting people with axes which, yeah. which is why that, um, you know, that Warhammer Dark Tide game looks excellent because it is both hitting people with axes and shooting them with lasers. Um, uh, well, I suppose it also absolves you of a need to come up with a really convincing vision of the future. If, if instead you're saying, "Ah, oh, no, no, we're not doing a vision of the future. We're doing the wrong vision of the future as as uh, as it was seen in the '80s, which we know is wrong, but it's kind of cool because it's retro." Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I think I think that was about it for the for these conferences, but it wasn't the end of the E3 festivities uh, because there's also been Next Fest, right? Which is uh, Steam's summertime deluge of demos, and you've been playing some of them, I think, right, Jamie? I have, although I did want to mention one of a game that came out oh, during yeah. the, which is the Obsidian uh, uh, game that looks uh, like it's a medieval manuscript. Oh yes, sorry, my internet went down at, at that point during the presentation, so I missed I think, that actually. I think, it, <laughs> I think it might be called Pentiment, um, yes. and it is is by Obsidian. It is a kind of um, uh, sort of name of the rose style murder mystery that looks like a. It's kind of. I remember before the conference, a, a rumor went around that they were doing a kind of disco Elysium type game, and it's it doesn't look like that at all. It looks like a kind of Umberto Eco like. <laughs> um, uh, wherever the art style is based on medieval manuscript drawings mm. in the marginalia and stuff like that, I'm a, I've got that book, um, remarkable. I can't remember what it's called. Meetings with remarkable manuscripts, which I really recommend. It's a Ooh. brilliant, brilliant like coffee table book of like medieval manuscripts and how extraordinary they are. And uh, this game looks like it's you know picked straight from them. Um, it looks completely mad. I've got no idea what it is, but I you know it's the the game in the whole of the naughty three, you know, span of time that looked like nothing else I've ever seen before. And it looks, yeah, very exciting, that one. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely down with that. So very yeah, cool. Yeah, yes. the uh Steam Next Fest, where they release like literally hundreds and hundreds of demos, and then they fight to the death in a big pit <laughs> over who's going to uh, um play them. I played a good few of these. Um and uh, you know, I thought we could bounce through uh, a, a, th- a few of them. Mm. Um, so one of the uh, ones I enjoyed the most was a game called Old Skies, which is the incoming adventure game by um, Wadget Eye Games, who make kind of um, old school style in terms of the mechanics. They're very beautiful looking games, uh, point and click adventures. I love their game Unavowed, which came out a few years ago. Oh yeah, which was a really mm. good take on the kind of wizard detective genre which is always a bit of a a kind of a holy grail i think for fiction and they did a really good job of it and uh, this game uh, old skies is yeah the demo is really good um it's it's episodic in the same way that unavowed um was in that you kind of have cases and so the basic premise of old skies is that you are a agent for a kind of time traveling agency um, in a world where time travel is both allowed, and for those who have the, um, you know, the the uh, the, the pockets uh, deep enough for it, 
actually changeable. You can apply to kind of go into the past and change things um, as long as it doesn't sort of cause too many like time paradoxes. There's a moment in the game where you're, um, you're talking to your handler about a curry house that you really enjoyed eating at. And you say, oh, is that place still open? And your handler tells you that it doesn't exist anymore because the activities that you've done in the past have rendered it uh, out of existence. Um, uh, and it's a game, yeah, you're sort of... Uh, the, the the slice that they gave you um, for the demo is you're going into the kind of... It's actually sort of now. You're from the future, but the demo takes place, I think, in 2024. And you're um, taking a guy, a, a rich businessman, out for um, a meal at his favourite diner. And he gets up from the table halfway through and wanders off and, and goes off to cause mischief. Um, it's beautiful, um, really well designed kind of um, and uh, sounding game. Um, very simple point and click mechanics. The puzzles in his games uh, are often um, quite sparsely populated, by which I mean you're, you, it's not like a kind of old school adventure game where you're having to take one item and combine it with another one. They're not fiddly like that. They often involve making, you know, um, only a few decisions um, or a few um, actions, uh, which often have, you know, big consequences and there's often these big moral moments and big moral quandaries. But yeah, I just can't wait to play this game. The The, the demo is a perfect little um, uh, slice of, uh, you know, you can play it in uh, maybe 45 minutes or something like that. It's its own little short story. It introduces you to the world and... Yeah, it's just very, very good. <laughs> hmm. uh, it also has a uh, commentary and uh, blooper reel that you can play through the game, which I really <laughs> enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And the the developer, um, you know, kind of uh, sort of taking you through his process. Um, which, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Great. I've just recently been playing with um, Inky, which is the uh, tool uh, used to make, uh, amongst other things, Inkles games, which are obviously narrative, branching narrative games. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I might just... Um, play that in order to in order to get the commentary track that sounds really interesting yeah it's it's really fun he's a really kind of uh, um uh fun guy i think um mm. yeah um another one i really enjoyed was agent 64 spies never die um, oh yes did yeah. you get a chance to play this one i i i, I opened it <laughs> uh i i i simply don't have the same nostalgia for golden eye that a lot of people do uh I, I had a PC at the time, and so my experiences of Goldeneye were just going around a mate's house and then being handed this diabolically shame shaped <laughs> piece of plastic with several levers on it. I was like, that was any way to play a first-person shooter. And then being just mercilessly drubbed in multiplayer. So uh, <laughs> I never got into it, surprisingly enough. Um, <laughs> yes. I yeah. mean, so sell it to me. Well, that was a, I, I will say that that was exactly, to the decimal point, my um, experience with uh, Goldeneye and N64s. Um, but I did manage to really enjoy uh, uh, Agent, Six, what's it called? <laughs> Agent 64 Spies Never Die, which is um, basically a Goldeneye uh, kind of essentially remake. It takes the um, aesthetics and the gameplay of the classic N64 game and sort of uh, updates it. Um, and makes it nice and easy to con control. I, as I understand it, Kane, uh, Discord stalwart, Kane was talking about how it's really hard to play Goldeneye in emulation, and that mm. you know people trying to mod it so that you can uh, play it with mouse and keys, and it still never quite worked. Obviously, because the N64 controller was such a Byzantine weird piece of kit. Um, 
So this game kind of makes it smooth and, and easy to play. I, I really enjoyed this. I played it a whole bunch of times. You can play it on three difficulty modes and it gives you one mission to play um, with different degradations of, of difficulty. Um, and it is a golden eye like so that you have an amount of auto-aim, but you have to still kind of curate your auto-aim by pointing yourself in the right direction. And you have a button you can press to kind of fine tune your aiming which is also a holdover from uh you know golden eye um and there's you know there's a bit where you can shoot a guy's head in the toilet which i understand was a a classic classic moment in the uh, golden eye game on the 64 um i really i really enjoy trying to speed run it and kind of um uh you know uh, sort of get my way through it as as fast as i can and i found it very satisfying to sort of um you know, the enemies do that thing that they did in the game where they kind of dance around depending on where you shot them, which I always thought was the most extraordinary thing when I first saw it. And it actually turns into quite an interesting mechanic. I don't know if it was back then, but it certainly is here where you can kind of make enemies dance in order to sort of stun lock them in a funny kind of way. Um, you can prevent them from taking actions. And so at the higher levels where there's no, you know, the higher difficulty levels where there's no um, health pickups and the enemy you know, then kill you in a couple of shots, it becomes this weird kind of kinetic dance where you're moving as fast as possible and sort of, you know, there's a couple of moments in it where I felt kind of almost kind of John Wicky, even in this kind of weird retro world, where I was kind of spinning around, having learned the enemy placement somewhat and knowing I could, you know, stop this one guy from shooting at me, you know, just for long enough so I could shoot the guy who's standing on the other side of me. Um and yeah, I found it really enjoyable. Like you, I have no particular nostalgia for um, GoldenEye itself. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I really enjoyed the um, this kind of take on it. Yeah, huh, Interesting. There were quite a few um, retro shooters uh, on, on the list of games you played. But I, I, let's talk about this a bit, because I, I read an article recently by uh, a guy called Kyle Kushtel, who I don't know what his provenance is I'll, I'll link the article in the show notes i d- don't really agree with the overall pessimism or diagnosis of the industry that he presents which is that it's being increasingly mired in uh sort of game design conservatism um but i did think he was accurate in picking up a bunch of trends which he says contribute to this among which are just the increasing cost of game development overall which is obviously going to make game design more conservative uh familiarity as an increasingly desirable promise of games like familiarity itself is a virtue uh and then he also says the collapsing gap between items that generate culture and items that can be nostalgically reflected upon um and he points to remakes being particularly telling about this uh he mentions the last of us uh remake is being you know being remade before that cycle of console hardware is even particularly deprecated and so I was like, my question to you, Jamie Britton, is is familiarity a virtue in this overstimulated time poor age? And are we cannibalizing our past at the expense of the future? Uh I think it can I think it can work very well in the short term. Um I think it has problems uh when you kind of look back at it. I often think about the music of the nineties and the indie music that we heard in the nineties and the Britpop kind of stuff. And how that was all in this kind of weird thrall to weird ideas of authenticity um, and weird cultural sort of whales 
um, like the Beatles or the Sex Pistols or the kind of spirit of punk, which ended up kind of creating a whole bunch of really terrible music that was very meaningful for people <laughs> in that time and place. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, not uniformly terrible music, but like if you ever tried to listen to the early Blur albums or, you know, anything <laughs> past the first two Oasis albums or... Um, you know, I remember at the time that the band Suede were treated as being kind of ludicrously pretentious in in in, in kind of how they um, avoided uh, cliche. You know, and that was kind of seen as just the most distastefully pretentious and uppity kind of form of culture possible. Whereas the real bands, the Oasises and the and the, and the Blurs, um, were you know embracing the the fundamental wonderfulness of making the same music uh, uh, that people had been kind of bashing out with guitars for for twenty odd years, like kind of pub rock idiots. And I think it is a kind of quick fix that you can get. Like I certainly playing a bunch of these retro type shooters, and you know I really like the game Dusk. Um, hmm they do give you an immediacy and a familiarity which gives a a sense of pleasure which is really easy to obtain you know it's it's a kind of uh sweet treat and it doesn't mean that these games uh you know or the music of oasis for that matter has no intrinsic artistic value i do think it means that there is more of a time limit on how how long that sense of of quality will persist because i think once you move out of that kind of that kind of feedback loop, um, uh, you, it kind of diminishing returns. I mean, one right. of the other games I played, um, one of the other demos I played was a game called Metal Hellsinger, which is a, uh, a Doom 16 style FPS shooter, um, which um, has a rhythm action element. And the gameplay is really good fun and the music's really great. But the visual aesthetic has that kind of um, Doom style meatloaf, album cover, you know, demons and, and gruey uh, kind of gore, which I realized I'm just done with. <laughs> like that kind of OTT yeah. um, Doom style. I'm just like playing that game. I was like, well, I'm not going to play this actually because this is just so like overdone now that it's not fun anymore. And it was fun in, in Doom 2016 to see these kind of, uh, and in Doom Eternal to, to, to see these kind of relics updated and given, you know, a modern, uh, you know, shine. But I do think that those things tend to lose their luster after after a while. Um, and the things that are timeless are the things that kind of try and, and do things, you know, differently. Dark Souls remains a completely iconic game full of completely iconic moments and locations because it they spent a huge amount of time and effort trying not to repeat things that they'd seen before. Um, mm. or to twist things that they'd seen before beyond uh, recognition. And I think the retro uh, futuristic FPS genre is, as you say, very much about um, making something that's easily digestible um, and 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 less about kind of pushing. pushing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, it's weird, isn't it? Because, I mean, the, the, the epochal games that they are all remaking slash harking back to were... Uh, you know what made those original games successful was their originality, <laughs> and all, all the the rest of the aesthetic that they uh, they presented was really sort of ancillary to the, how novel they were. So harking back to them sort of misses the point, but I also find them a lot of the time very satisfying to play. So I don't really have a an angry horse in this race. My horse is completely neutral. <laughs> you got a neutral horse, an ambivalent horse. I mean, um, 
there is something to be said that video games in particular, you know, they, you know, the fact that the like an FPS engine is something that, you know, someone with relatively low technical skill can pick up and, and make something from. I mean, again, another one of the games I played is a game called Slayer's X Terminal Aftermath Vengeance of the Slayer, <laughs> which is a superb <laughs> title and is a retro FPS set in the Hypnospace Outlaw universe where the fiction of the game is it's a game created by one of the edgelord kids on the hypnospace uh you know sort of fake angel fire internet of that game which is a <laughs> which is a, a fictional world that i adore hypnospace outlaw is so funny and well observed and as someone who had an angel fire page at a certain point in the you know <laughs> mid to late 90s i feel like i'm the sort of perfect audience for it and uh, did you get a chance to play Slayer's X? Uh, no, I, I skipped that one, I have to say. It's so funny. And it's funny because the conversation we're having it is a game, an FPS shooter ostensibly made by this edgelord kid, um, which contains, you know, um, you know, lots of a kind of banging new metal soundtrack, like pictures of his like bullying victims in the game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a dialogue where he goes like, you know, you, you kind of, you go out of your bedroom and into these sewers and he says something like, um, the uh, the slayers have poisoned the sewage well and now the poops are coming to life. Gross. Like he says something <laughs> like that. And you're basically running around. It's a Duke Nukem 3D style game where you are a kind of teenage kid, um, edgelord, uh, demon slayer running around shooting poops and uh, uh, pictures of your classmates and stuff like that. And it's very clever because a lot of the enjoyment of it is imagining the human being who has made this game um, and the world that he exists in. And it, it perfectly explicates his um, sort of worldview. Um, huh. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really funny. And, uh, and, and I think it is an attempt to kind of wrestle with some of the stuff we've been talking about um, in a kind of comedic um, way. And I, I had a lot of fun with it. It's, it's deeply silly. Um, but sort of, it's got such a great sense of humor and that kind of world, like the very online world of teenage boys in, in late nineties internet culture is just rife for, um, <laughs> uh, you know, hilarity. Cause it, everyone was so, I remember it, it was so ridiculous back then to be online. And, uh, yeah, it really captures that kind of weird mix of sort of, I don't know narcissism and, and teenage idiocy oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe i, I will really pick do. it up then yeah because even if it isn't uh, a, a good shooter in itself i like the idea of using that as a sort of biographical <laughs> device it will definitely make you laugh um i'll say that another one i played was angerfoot oh i gave this a go this is good fun yeah you talk about angerfoot oh really <laughs> i don't actually have a lot to say about it i mean it has uh, uh it's in, it shares a bit of DNA with these games because a lot of these sort of retro shooters feel like they're designed for speedrunning. And this is obviously a sort of time attack-ish uh, game where you're going through these quite small levels and punting uh, enemies with animal faces uh, with your foot and alternately shooting them. It's very propulsive in the manner of Hotline Miami, even though it is first person. I just love how designed everything is in it. Like it is, despite I mean, despite coming on the back end of this retro conversation, it's not at all retro. It's it's uh, it feels very modern in its in its visuals. Uh, it, even like every icon in the menus has been given love and character. Uh, like your mouse pointer in the menus is a little footprint, which is cute. Um, it just uh, 
everything just feels very kind of cohesive and focused. I didn't play it for very long, but I did. Uh, I did enjoy it. It's the sense of it, the music, everything. Yeah, so I sometimes think with um, Devolver games in particular that they often make perfect demos. Like yeah, that like I played this and I thought. <laughs> I did exactly the same thing that I did with their game, like Ape, Ape Out, was that game called? Whereas mm. like, I played the demo and I thought, this is such a good communication of what this game is and what it involves. I don't think I need to play <laughs> the actual game of it now um, uh, because it just felt like, oh, it's, that's just given me everything I'm going to need. And I really enjoyed it and I thought it was really admirable, but I thought it was probably you know, about the amount of time I want to spend with it uh, right. uh, yeah. fully expressed. But yeah, I agree. It's 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 got a lovely um, uh, vibe to it, really unique. And I, I appreciate that, certainly. Another game I played was The Silent Swan. Um, mm, did you get, did you get gave, a look at The Silent Swan? <laughs> I gave it a, a very brief go, um, but uh, I, was, I was defeated by it, I have to say, Jamie. Yeah, it's a game that doesn't want you to play it. And and not for like um, you know clever spec up the lines reasons, but for bad design reasons. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was it was a good demo in that sense because it did yeah. demonstrate <laughs> all the ways in which you probably shouldn't play the full game. No, uh, which, I mean, is, which is mean. I, I, it, it may uh, it may yet improve, and it's very nice to hear a Welsh voice in games. I do I do like that. Yes, but um, yes. My, so just to uh, before we get into the what it actually is, my my problems with it were just completely practical like it didn't provide a settings menu that was instantly accessible uh, and you can't really withhold a settings menu uh, if you have a very long introductory set of cutscenes, um because your player is going to experience the very opening of your game in the worst possible way um <laughs> and then when i had to quit to the main menu in order to access the settings menu it just lost all my progress so, uh, <laughs> and there wasn't even a way to change mouse sensitivity anyway uh, <laughs> so I uninstalled it, but uh, I assume you persisted longer than I did and saw more of its charms. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about charms, um, but I certainly <laughs> persisted. It's it's just because it interested me. I love a, um, a walking simulator. Um, I love a dear Esther, and the the voice actor in this game is 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 you know is doing a dear Esther voice. He sounds a bit like um, I thought. He's, I know you said he's Welsh, and he is, but he, also, he sounded quite a bit like Alex Wiltshire to me. <laughs> it was kind of slightly grim, dark. Steampunk Alex Wiltshire. Um, <laughs> <laughs> someone else can play it and, and, and decide if I'm right. But yeah, just interesting. It's an open world walking simulator, which is a, a novel idea. The 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 um the demo starts you out and you're uh you're you're I mean I'll just skip through the kind of plot because it's sort of uninteresting really. Your wife has gone missing, you're gonna go and find her. That Your wife who is voiced by Bells. She is voiced by Bells. I like that. Yeah. You wake up in the middle of the night. Your wife, who, who talks like Bells, is on the balcony. She says, don't worry about anything, darling. Go back to bed. You go back to bed and then she's gone and you spend uh, 16 years looking for her. <laughs> this is all in the first cut scene. And then you come back home uh, to, uh, I think you've given up and you get off the train and you walk in through these big gates towards this city. Um, your walking speed is very slow. You can run it's still slow and then you can also get on bikes um but i got on a bike and rode it along this big um steampunk highway and then when i got off the bike i couldn't get back on again so i had to walk <laughs> the rest of the way forwards um that said i really liked it despite all that stuff because it kind of 
you know, it's obviously an indie game made by a small group of people. The design of the city and the design of the world was kind of, I don't know, spectacular, I think. And I like the idea of people making big, crazy games based on the weird spaces that they see in their imaginations. And I don't think there's been enough of that. I think mm. often, you know, particularly with a, like a walking simulator, dear Esther, case in point, or gone home, they deal with these discrete locations that they can, you know, kind of... Uh, design and curate for the players very carefully to great effect in both those games. This game does the opposite and it fails so far, you know, because it it doesn't it doesn't kind of it doesn't really make sense to have a, a walking simulator set in an open world. But as I say, I I like the idea that games can do can could start doing this sort of thing a bit more where yeah, as I say, people can come up with impossible architecture and put it into a world and you can kind of wander around it a bit. Uh, and I like that about it. Um, I didn't really like anything else about it, but I like what it represented. And I hope that, you know, I mean, you know, there's a there's a game they could make out of this, I'm sure. Um, I just hope, you know, that indie games play in this space a bit more because... You know, there's a couple of moments in that demo where you're looking up at the sky and you're seeing these impossibly enormous towers, you know, uh, uh, you know, on the horizon. And it's just really kind of spectacular. And it feels like the inside of someone's dreams. And, you know, I, I love that. Hmm. Cool. I won't reinstall it. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> Sorry. I, mean, I, I don't think I will either. I mean, also, it's called the Silent Swan. And there's already a walking simulator called the Unfinished Swan. So they need to rethink the title because it's too... Yeah. <laughs> was that the end of Next Fest? That was the end of Next Fest, yeah. Can I tell you about the game I've been playing? Please, please do. Which I don't think is in Next Fest, but it is probably the vision of uh, one person and in a similar way to The Silent Swan. Somewhat cumbersome, perhaps, would be the way to describe it in its design, but uh, certainly an idiosyncratic vision, uh, possibly an obsession. Um, I've been playing a game called Shadows of Forbidden Gods, which is not quite a 4X strategy game. It's probably got at least three X's in it. <laughs> um, not triple X, though, uh, importantly. It, you, do, um, <laughs> you don't really explore because the world is visible to you uh, as a map from beforehand, uh, but you do expand. You do definitely exploit, and ultimately you really, really exterminate because you are <laughs> a horrible god. Uh, from some cursed past, waiting to be reborn into this sort of large fantasy world uh, that you will then conquer or consume, uh, depending on what your sort of Lovecraftian shtick is. Um, and you do this uh, via uh, sort of Crusaders Kings style overworld map. Uh, you send out agents, it's turn based, you send out agents uh, to infiltrate human settlements and spread the influence of your cult. Um, and there's lots of ways to do this. You can sort of simply just cause chaos by raiding, for example, and you bring about generalized unrest, uh, which might disrupt food production in a farming community that feeds a larger city. Uh, you can assassinate leaders and then have them replaced by their weaker offspring. You can bribe guards. You can shift blame for your crimes onto uh, innocent human heroes who are actually trying to hunt your agents down. Um you can infiltrate city sewers, um, and the poops don't come alive, but you can start plagues. 
Um, so all great, just lots of nice, charming things that you can do. Um, and eventually you'll sort of be able to make a city uh, just so depressed <laughs> that it's, it's susceptible to your influence that you can then completely enshroud it in shadow. And then once you've done that to a number of places in a region, you sort of take control of it as a larger power block via a particular agent who has a certain skills in that regard called the Monarch. And each agent comes with its own set of differently weighted stats. You can recruit different ones at different times. Uh, and they have particular, uh, quite colorful abilities that unlock over time, and you can choose which ones you upgrade, uh, sorry, which ones you unlock uh, as you upgrade them. And the range and sort of interplay of these agents is really interesting. Like, I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of what's possible, like synergy-wise. There's a sort of jester-style agent uh, who goes around with a pet monkey. Um, it's good at sort of, sort of deflection and, and subtle sabotage, and there's a courtier who's good at like social intrigues and infiltration. Um, and then there are sort of tanky agents as well who will sort of catch uh, a lot of the a lot of heat for your actions, uh, which can be useful to draw the heat away from your other agents. Um, because as these agents commit various crimes, um, they attract different sorts of attention, sort of like a, either a sort of neutral fame, which can be an asset or a hazard, you know, uh, depending on how things go for you. Or, you just, or other people view them as, as a threat, um, but that not necessarily directly linked to an understanding of them as cultists. But uh, like eventually that becomes apparent and human heroes will then confront them and fight them in a battle system that I completely don't understand, <laughs> perhaps isn't even entirely implemented. Um, but there's a, sort of, there's a sort of ordering to your actions which feels sort of strategic but also also just sort of necessary like i mean it, it feels like you don't although there's lots of choices before you there's a there's, it's pretty obvious that what you have to do is uh weaken outlier communicate communities sort of bring down the security levels of larger cities so that your intrigues there don't take a prohibitive amount of time um because every 10 rounds or so that an agent spends engaged in an activity then they're interrupted by these uh sort of uh multiple choice events that usually ask you to give up trade, you know, trade treasure or, or time for success or something like that. Um, and then the humans are working against you too. They all have their own sort of heroes, which are the equivalent of agents. They're all moving around the world independently. Uh, and in a short time of starting the game, uh, one of those uh, humans is uh, becomes the chosen one, which means that they know fully uh, of your plans to uh, resurrect yourself and, and bring darkness to the world. Um, and they start on, the, at least in the games I played, on the other side of the continent, and they begin um, making their own alliances uh, with with the other human factions there to build up uh, resistance to your to your intrigues and the spread of your darkness, basically. And there's a, and there's an incredible richness to the simulation. I don't really know how much of it actually links in to things you can do. Like there's there's a lot of detail there down to like the preferences and like peccadilloes of, of rulers in each city, like in Crusader Kings. And I haven't really seen an obvious lever to pull to exploit those individual things. Um, so I don't know if that's just like the developer getting carried away with the amount of uh, detail that he can generate uh, um, or whether those are things that kind of really uh, interlink with actual strategies. But it's, it, it feels very kind of deep and interesting. It's very, very fiddly. Um, in terms of the UI, it's 
a nightmare, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> like it's it's obviously like the scrappy passion project of a single developer. It has that kind of feel to it. And the, the UI doesn't distinguish between your own agents and uh, humans on the map. So it's very hard just to look at a glance and see where anything is even. Um, but I've... I've found enough of it that is really novel and uh, and weird um, in a way which was worth persisting past those sort of UI problems for. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. I, I think I'm going to have a good, give give this one a go. Um, one of the things that, like you know, you mentioned like Crusader Kings as a as a reference, and like I I I again like Crusader Kings is one of those games I I want to enjoy more probably more than I actually do. But mm. like when I do enjoy Crusader Kings it's because it feels like a simulation of of something like really vivid and real feeling, right? It suddenly feels like oh wow, this really is like a a kind of a simulation of of courtly politics and intrigue taking place, you know, on my on my screen. Um uh, and that will last for a while, and then suddenly it will kind of fall away, and I'll go, "No, oh, it's just like this is just ridiculous. I'm just like playing like solitaire, <laughs> like right, there's, yeah. There's really nothing, you know. It it, it lives and dies on that kind of um, uh, veil of of verisimilitude. Is this a game that has any kind of um, uh, sort of sense of that, or is it more yes. a kind of strategic kind of thing? No, I think you're. I think you're probably exactly right about uh, the extent. I mean, it's the veil has yet to fall fully from my eyes because it's quite um, the objectives it sets f- for for you as a player are sufficiently different from other games that I'm interested in pursuing them, regardless of how deep that strategy actually is. But I think maybe after a couple of rounds, uh, a couple of games of it, it'll the mechanics of it will become much more apparent, and uh, some of that some of that kind of um, sense of verisimilitude in the simulation will will f- begin to feel a bit more fake as I see all the kind of options recurring again or in in ways which are just make them feel more generic um, so I don't I don't know I haven't plumbed the depths of it yet but there are there are different uh, gods that you can play and each one of those um, promises a very very different sort of um, strategy um, and end game so there's there's uh, at least one god uh, which uh, is a, a giant world-eating snake and you then have to uh, protect it after it's born for as it grows uh, which which suggests a very different set of objectives from the gods that i've been playing currently so uh, that's fantastic it, it feels <laughs> like they're, they're, it feels like there could be a lot of depth to it um or that could be just smoke and mirrors <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know yet, but it's I, I I'm going to play it a bit more, I think, and, and find out. Yeah, I mean, I think people who you know who play Crusader Kings long term, what what they learn is that like, you know, you get out of it what you put into it. You know, you can just kind of after a certain point, you do see the numbers and you do see the matrix, and it becomes very easy to kind of quote unquote win, um, which means that people get really into kind of role playing it more and setting themselves, you know, peculiar goals like you know turning all of you know um africa into a bohemian you know empire or whatever (laughs) yeah it's it's crazy stuff like that um my friend uh my friend tom is fond of playing hearts of iron 4 and changing history so that uh, mexico becomes the uh, global power following uh, 1945 (laughs) and i you know i think these kind of um systems heavy strategy games they can really come into their own if you put the if you put the t- if sort of both parties in terms of player and developer have put the time in and you can you can end up kind of you know coming up with some really weird and wonderful stuff and i, I love the um 
you know, the, the you know the idea of eldritch gods being you know the kind of players in this world just sounds yeah, it's sort of a, a really uh, interesting uh, uh, spice. <laughs> I like the yeah. idea of the uh, chosen one being that you know that's the in any other video game that would be the character you play as. I like the idea that, you're, <laughs> that he's a, a guy on the other side of the map. It's great. Yeah. Well, I think that's about it for this podcast. Uh, if you'd like to tweet us, you can do so at Crate and Crowbar. You can watch these recordings as videos on YouTube where you can find other stuff by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar. Thanks as always to our backers on Patreon. You can back us too at patreon.com slash Crate and Crowbar, or you can simply join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, crateandcrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Jamie Britton. Thank Thanks you, for listening. Hey, Manny.